Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. This week's episode is going to be with Adam Braun, former consultant turned founder of an amazing nonprofit, turned founder again of an amazing tech-enabled education company that's changing the way we think about how to uh, afford education and get through school and how we think about careers. A couple quick notes before we get to that. Uh, A couple shout-outs, actually. Number one, to Corey from Canada, who instructed me uh, in her email to the show after last week's episode to get my voice checked out because it is not yet full strength. It's almost there, uh, but Corey was concerned. She has a background in voice therapy and getting your vocal cords better, and I really appreciate that. So, Corey, thank you for the note in. We are hearing some amazing questions and inbound comments from listeners. You can record your jump story using an audio recorder. Send a file to jump at mcmillan.com. But a lot of folks use our website, whentojump.com. There's a contact form. You can shoot us a note. And I'd like to share some of the questions that come in as we get them, because I think they're questions that, in fact, everybody can relate to. And there's a lot of kind of how-to tactical uh, questions that come in that, you know, more so than just one person who's asking it, I think we can all benefit from from discussing it. So with that in mind, I want to bring up a question from uh, Brian, who's a listener from LA. He actually found out about when to jump by seeing our book in the San Francisco airport. He said he devoured it, started listening to the podcast, and then he reached out with this question. And this is Brian. And he says, quote, the book didn't mention much about finding your jump. And this has been the problem in my work life for the past five years. I know trying to create my own business is the, quote, my jump, end quote, need for my sanity and lifetime happiness. From your research and talking to people on this subject, have you heard any books, exercises, stories about people in the same situation? There are no direct answers to these types of life questions, but I was curious if you knew people who wanted to jump, but had no clue what to jump into or where to start. All right. First of all, thank you, Brian. Um, I'm sure a lot of us are thinking about this, and it's a great question. And as you know, if you read the book, you know, we typically tackle jumps after people have the kernel of an idea. So this is a, a very relevant question. I would point to a couple stories in the book that, for me, give actually a lot of guidance on how you can get to that jump that you actually want to make when you start out with really just a clean slate and a bunch of ideas. So there's a story from Eric Wu who came on the podcast very early on in the fall. He's featured in the book, he's on the podcast, and he talks about how the first thing you should do is think about what makes you curious. So before you start to dig deep on setting up a business in being a baker or starting a toy company, let's rewind a bit and say, okay, what do I spend my free time doing? And here's a tactic for you, Brian. You can actually do what we call a time audit, where you look at what you're doing and how you're spending your free time outside of your day job, on the weekends, et cetera. So you can actually map out over the course of a week, what am I spending my free time doing? Where does my mind wander? If it's to look up how to make a toy, or if it's to wander into toy stores and talk to owners, that actually is a pretty good sign. You're probably pretty interested in making toys and perhaps opening a toy shop. 
Or it could just be, you know what? I think that idea is interesting, but I'm spending a ton more time doing research on uh, how to make uh, textiles and, and jean jackets. And all of a sudden you can start to prioritize that over making toys. The point is, is we actually let our mind wander uh, all the time, but we rarely see where it's wandering to, or we rarely try to take a, t a minute to do this time audit and see where it goes. And by seeing where it goes, I think you can see what makes you curious. And that's what I would say to start is following Eric's advice in the book and on the podcast, see where that first thread unravels to. Maybe it's, it's a hobby that's just going to be a hobby. Maybe it's going to be that jump. But I think any jump is going to be successful only if you're truly uh, invested in it. And I think that actually is a nice segue into the difference between a passion and having a purpose. And that's what today's guest, Adam Braun, is going to talk about. An idea that you're passionate about is not going to be as valuable as an idea that you feel you have purpose around. So as you're seeing your time audit come back and you're, you're looking at how you're spending time, he would push you, and he'll talk about this in the conversation here today, to really think and analyze, you know, where do I find purpose? So you might have ideas that are passions, but as, as Adam Braun will tell you here on the show today, a passion is fleeting. A purpose has more permanence, but they're harder to find. So as you're looking at what you're doing when you're bored, how you're spending your weekends, try to decide, is this something that I'm passionate about or is this something I feel like I have a purpose for? To go back to the example, you might feel like, you know what? I like making jean jackets. I have a passion for wearing them, but that's not something that's my purpose. If your purpose is to provide entertainment and educational products to kids, that might actually be manifested in making toys. So I hope that helps you, Brian. I think this episode is going to be spot on for how you think of that kernel of an idea and how you really judge what's worth jumping for and what, what isn't. If you've got questions on the podcast, again, you can share your jump by recording it and sending it to jump at mcmillan.com, but you can do what Brian did and just shoot us an email from the contact form on our website, which is whentojump.com. So without further ado, I'm going to open it up into the man that knows the difference between passion and purpose, Adam Braun on the When to Jump podcast today. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So can we start back, and I know you've told this story before, but I think it's important to share just this aha moment, which came about in, in a pretty surreal context with this boy in India. Can you share that experience? Sure. So, um, you know, at the time I was a college student traveling on the semester at sea program, which is uh, what I went for, for, you know, my study abroad experience. I didn't just want to go to one place. I wanted to go to multiple. And in particular, I wanted to really immerse myself uh, in the developing world because it was well out of my comfort zone. I'd never been to any developing world context. And, uh, you know, at the time, uh, I think it was our fourth country, maybe uh, we were in India and I just never seen poverty at, at the depths of, um, you know, real, real uh, pain and, and despair that you see oftentimes with street beggars in India. And uh, the most kind of stark and, and helpless part, uh, at least for me, was, you know, witnessing little, little children. I mean, I'm talking, you know, three, three year olds holding five month olds. Uh, in train stations. And, you know, I had this habit uh, in each country that I went through of asking one child uh, one question that was, what do you want most in the world? And I have them write it down on a piece of paper. I would, you know, write down their answer for them. And uh, so I found a street beggar and, you know, I asked him if he could have anything in the world, what would he want most? And his answer was a pencil. And, you know, it was, of course, shocking. But, you know, I started to ask why, you know, if you could have anything, a pencil. And, you know, he, he confirmed because uh, what I came to understand was that he had never been to school before. 
and for him, that, that pencil that he saw other children you know, walking around with uh, was really this uh, tool for enabling possibility and creativity and imagination. And it's also something that wasn't necessarily going to be taken away from him by the people that probably put him on the streets. You know, oftentimes it's a gang lord or even, uh, you know, frankly, a neglectful parent. But if he got money, you know, they were just going to take it away from him. If he got food, it could maybe feed him in the moment. But that idea that the pencil was the, the tool to unlock uh, the potential that he held was just so powerful, and I happened to have a pencil with me. I gave it to him. He just absolutely lit up, and all these you know, other kids came around, and I started passing out pens and pencils, and that really became my thing as I traveled through you know, 50-plus countries in, in subsequent years. Um, you know, I always brought pens and pencils with me. They opened up conversations. Oftentimes, um, you know, they came back to education, and uh, eventually it, it inspired the name of the organization that I founded in late 2008 called Pencils of Promise. Wow. And so... Um... Talk a little bit about what happened next indirectly, in I guess, in, in terms of, um, you know, your parents and where you were in school and what their expectations were, because it seems like there's a real push and pull. Yeah. Um, you know, at, at the time, I became pretty hardline by the time I got back from, from semester at sea. I, I was probably a pretty challenging person to be around because I was, you know, always kind of bringing everything back to the, the way that it applied in the developing world because, um you know, I spent a fair amount of time there, and then I just became obsessed with backpacking and traveling back to those locations. And so I'd you know, make some money. Uh, I'd go back and spend as much time as I could in, in different countries and oftentimes in the rural villages uh, where people oftentimes took me in. And you know, my parents, I think, uh, frankly, did a great job of kind of letting me pursue the, the spark that I had inside. You know, their approach was, uh, we'll support you, just not financially. So uh, if you want to go out and make your own money and use that money to go to these places, um, you know, we're not going to stop you, but we're not exactly going to give you the resources to go out and do it. Um, you have to earn your, your, your way to, to have that experience. And so, um, you know, I started building businesses and, and kind of running my, my side hustles uh, that I'd always been doing since I was a, a little kid. And uh, that entrepreneurial, you know, cult streak uh, was certainly within me. Um, but, you know, I, I came back and I started working at Bain & Company um, after I graduated from college. And, you know, Bain is just an incredible training ground uh, for really the skill set that you would need in really any business context to add value. But uh, it was amazing to see how the world's leading companies were being run and figure out ways to add value. And so it was an amazing uh, place for me to really learn. Uh, but at the same time, I, I wanted to get back to those entrepreneur roots. And so just before my 25th birthday, uh, I pitched them on allowing me to use their externship, which is essentially a six-month leave where you go and work for a different company and then come back. Uh, and I said, what if I don't go to work for somebody else? What if I launch something myself and, and built up a, a nonprofit organization called Pencil of Promise uh, in the hopes of building one school? And fortunately, they agreed. They said, okay. Um, if you can figure that out, uh, we're not, you know, we'll, we'll allow you to do it. And so I crowdsourced, you know, the, the early money before crowdsourcing was a word. It was just my birthday party and give $20 at the door. And then we did, you know, a number of other, what I would consider small events for low dollars, but, um, you know, it really started to gain traction. And then I went, uh, and it was actually nine month, uh, leave starting in, in Laos, uh, where the first school was going to be built. And I think the, the challenging moment for my parents was I came back after the nine months, we had built our first school, but I found a, a really, really rural and really, really impoverished community, you know, kind of like what you would picture in National Geographic uh, old magazines. It, it was like that context, you know, removed from all kind of traditional right. Western civilization on a, on a hillside, you know, four hours uh, from the closest town or city. And, and even that city itself is, is pretty, um, you know, uh, 
basic in, in its amenities. And uh, I was really committed to, to building a school in this community because they really, really needed it. And uh, that's when I, after four months back at Bain, uh, by the start of 2010, made the decision that I was going to leave Bain to work on Pencil Promise full time. And you got to understand at the time, you know, we had no full time staff. Uh, we had no office. I think in total, we had raised um, less than $100,000. And I said, I'm going to leave and, and go build this. And at the time, you know, I was getting headhunters calling me, you know, offering $250,000 a year jobs in private equity. And I said, no, I'm going to go and focus on this nonprofit that I started with 25 bucks about a year and a half ago. <laughs> um, and, and my parents, you know, it was, it was not their, their optimal choice. You know, they both came from nothing, worked their way really, really hard to get their children into a better position. And, you know, I was kind of the, the one that went to, you know, Brown University, so I went to an amazing school, uh, you know, I got this great consulting job that my dad, who's a dentist, could tell his, his um, you know, patients about really proudly. And it was a big risk. And also, you know, this is, you know, still kind of early 2010, economy really wasn't good. So it, it wasn't something that they wanted me to do. Um, but again, you know, they, they weren't going to stop me. Uh, they'd always said, look, you know, if you feel like this is the place that you're meant to go, we're going to ask you a lot of critical questions. We're going to make sure that you have the conviction to make sure that you, you know, see it through. But um, there was really no stopping me at that point in time. Um, and so, you know, they kind of let me pursue my path. And you had told me before when we've talked about this that you believe the, the most wasted resource on earth is, is that of human intention. How important yeah. was it to write down, even before you left, exactly what your vision is for this and what it would go and grow towards and, and what you wanted to do on day one well before you actually took that jump? Oh, it was critical. Um, you know, I, I mean, I still have literally the, the documents saved uh, in my Dropbox, but you know, the night that I thought of Pencil of Promise, which was September 20th, 2008, um, you know, I, I literally, the, the name came into my head and it was like a lightning bolt hit me and I, I knew that I could find a way to build one school. I went home and I wrote down a, a founding charter, essentially, and it was, you know, this probably three or four page document, you know, scrambled together at midnight on a Friday or Saturday night in New York City uh, in uh, my apartment really just detailing, here's the mission, here's the vision, here's how we're gonna go about doing this, here's all the different countries that I would love to operate in, you know, here's the communities that I've visited where this could work, here's a bunch of, frankly, in retrospect, really bad fundraising ideas, um, and uh, things kind of ran from there, but it was critical to not only write it down for myself, but also to start to verbalize what I was gonna do to others so that they would hold me accountable. You know, I, I started telling anyone that would listen, I'm leaving Bain to build a non-for-profit organization that's going to build schools in the developing world. And, you know, telling people what I was going to go do before I had done it, I, I think is really important because it, it not only creates the emotional momentum, but it also creates the accountability that doesn't let you back out in those scary moments. You know, you, you know, oh, I've told others about this. They're going to expect me to go out and accomplish this. And I don't want to let, you know, them down. Um, I want to prove this, not just to myself, but, but to the world. And I think that's critical. Yeah, it's so funny what it does to you when you when you say something out loud, you write something down, and then you tell someone else, right? It's that accountability, I think, that people miss where, yep. you know, you can be, I think, caught up, especially in today's age with social media and pop culture, and you see the end that you want, but you oftentimes don't think of the middle. And I think by giving people that sense of, hey, I'm going to go do this, it puts you on the hook a little bit. Mm -hmm. For sure. And when you left, it seems like you were measured in taking the full jump. Like you had, I think, a, a bit of a, not a social contract with your parents, but a bit of, hey, if this doesn't work, here's what I'm going to do next. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I remember thinking at the time, um, look, I'm going to leave Bain. Uh, I'm going to pursue this for about a year, year and a half, and then I'm going to go to business school. 
and I'll continue to do, you know, a school on the side of business school year. And after business school, we'll see where it's at. You know, maybe I'll find somebody to run it full time when I'm in business school. Then I can go maybe, you know, back to a financial job to make a bunch of money and become a major donor and kind of, you know, board chair. That, that was part of the original vision. I remember telling my parents, don't worry, it's not like I'm going to leave this kind of path I'm on entirely. You know, I'll, I'll go to business school in like a year and a half, but I want to pursue this now. And, you know, obviously that never came to fruition. Um, but, but I do think that, um, you know, Adam Grant writes about this in his book, Originals. Um, you know, the, the idea of like entrepreneurs going out and, you know, taking these wild risks before they've even thought through what the next steps are going to be, uh, I think is often, uh, you know, not exactly true. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are willing to take a risk, but it's because they've, you know, calculated every single step in their mind and they've kind of thought through the next five moves on the chessboard. Um, and they're confident that they're, they're able to take that leap right now because if it works out, great. Um, but at the same time, they're aware of what the next counter moves might be as the world changes around them. And so when you decided to go, you had also mentioned to me that, you know, you, you had doubts on your own, but, you know, maybe personal side of things of, geez, this is hard, this is, you know, challenging, but you never doubted the sense of what you were doing for the organization and the purpose. Can, can you comment on, on why that's so important? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think for a lot of people, they end up pursuing their passion and I actually think that's bad advice. Um, passions are very fleeting. They, they come and go, you know, it's the moment of excitement, but um, passions disappear very quickly. And what I encourage people to really pursue instead is, is your purpose. And that's a lot harder to identify. It, it doesn't just show up one day, you know, overnight. Um, it requires, I think, a lot of deep introspective work uh, that can be difficult and challenging and time consuming. But, you know, once you get to that place where you have a level of conviction that you fundamentally believe this is what you're here on earth to go do, um, it's, it's uh, one of those things that you, you can't get out of your system very easily and therefore you don't give up in the challenging moments. And so, you know, I certainly felt that uh, in the origin uh, of Pencil of Promise, it really carried me through, you know, a lot of challenging moments that we had. You know, I'd ask a donor for a contribution and they say no. And there was a real feeling of rejection there. And, and you kind of ask yourself, well, geez, why am I doing this? I could be doing something else, you know, or, um, you know, you'd be in the field and I had, uh, three very bad motorbike accidents that have happened to me in my life, but two of them were uh, in the context of being in rural Laos, working on Pencils of Promise. And, you know, you have this horrific injury, you're in the middle of nowhere. I didn't get myself health insurance because I didn't want to take money out of the organization, the first one. And I'm sitting there, you know, kind of thinking, geez, why am I doing this to myself? But the answer is because this is what I'm here to do. This is why I think I'm alive. And so that, that becomes incredibly critical. And, you know, now my day-to-day -day focus is on uh, Mission U. Uh, the organization that I founded in early 2016 that's uh, a one-year higher education program uh, focused on teaching people the you know, critical skills to get great jobs in demand and do so debt-free. Um, and I, I feel the same way about Mission U that I felt about Pencils of Promise um, really through my 20s. Now that I'm in my 30s, my level of conviction around the brokenness of the higher education system and our need to uh, you know, develop programs that don't crush people with debt and give them the incredibly valuable opportunities to get super high paid and, you know, in-demand jobs um, kind of drives my conviction with Mission U today. It's interesting. You, you talk about having, you know, a purpose that changes form. And I agree with that. And I think if you look at 
what was it, eight years at Pencils of Promise that you led it, or is that right? Yeah, 2008 to 2015, and I'm still very involved. Um, I'm just not the day-to-day CEO. I mean, I'm board board uh, emeritus and founder, and so you know, I still do a lot of public speaking about the organization. I tend to be kind of um, the kind of center for inbound interest because people will read my book, which is entirely about the organization and kind of my journey building it and uh, the experiences and lessons learned along the way. And so people reach out literally daily that have finished the book, and then I get to kind of you know send them to the right person at the organization. So I'm still involved in Pencil Promise, but you know the vast majority of my time uh, is spent on where I'm the day-to-day CEO, which is at Mission U. And starting Mission U probably couldn't have happened before doing your first jump, right? I think it seems like those oh, yeah. led to each other. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, in general, um, you, you develop the the conviction um, to go after something like a Mission U um, as a result of, you know, seeing uh, the impact that a broken higher education system has had on people's lives. And I wouldn't have been in that position had I not gone out and pursued Pencils of Promise, right? Um, you know, if I had gone down a call it path working in private equity or hedge funds, which is where I was kind of most likely to end up otherwise. Uh, I, I doubt I would have been uh, at community colleges in Arizona and Tennessee. I, I doubt I would have been, you know, at uh, events like, you know, Harvard Business School's um, Social Innovation Conference, um, the, the places where I started to hear about a lot of these issues. And, um, you know, you also, uh, frankly, if, if you're someone who enjoys taking the leap, then you crave those those periods of kind of creation, which are, are most often seen in the early stages of a, a startup. And so, you know, I remember the early days of Pencil Promise. It was this roller coaster ride, but you know, it was thrilling for me. And and I found that I actually really seek out those kind of moments uh, where you can create, where things are malleable, and you know, it's a different type of leader who can be more successful. Uh, at later stages of the company, and, and that was part of why I wanted to, frankly, replace myself with uh, a new CEO after, called seven years or so, as, as the CEO of Pencil of Promise, um, and bring in someone really extraordinary who could help guide the organization through that part of its life, and I could get back to the early stages, which is obviously what um, you know I'm now experiencing at, at Mission U, which is super thrilling and exciting. We're seeing amazing traction, and that's really gratifying. And when you talk about challenges, obviously the other piece of the equation is failures. How do you, th- mm. how did you think of failure, you know, in the jumps you've made and, and how, you know, what guidance would you have for others? I think that's seems to be one of the bigger pieces of why people don't take a risk or take that yeah. jump that they want. Yeah, I think most people don't take the, the leap um, because of fear of failure. I think it's not that they lack the conviction. Um, I think it's that, that kind of, you know, devil on the shoulder that's going to say, to them, hey, if you don't make it, everyone's going to think that you're a failure, you're going to embarrass yourself. Do you really want to, you know, get out of your comfort zone and, and take that risk? And that voice is loud enough for, I think, the vast majority of people that they never fully take the leap. And, you know, for, at least for me, it, it's a different voice that motivates me, which is um, you're going to fail if you end up in a completely normal, you know, traditional path. Like, that. that's just kind of the way I was raised. I mean... You know, uh, I wrote about in the book, but every night before I went to sleep when I was a kid, my my dad would tell us one phrase over and over and he would just say, you know, just remember, bronze are different. And that was it. It was just bronze are different. Um, And, you know, he wasn't necessarily saying you're you're better or you're worse. He would just said, look, you are different. I expect you to take a different path from others. I'm going to hold you accountable to a different set of standards. And it really manifested, you know, when some of the kids I grew up with, you know, I can remember in first or second grade, I'd find out that you know, such and such got $5 for every A. And so this kid got like 20 bucks. And I'd come home and I'd say, mom, dad, like I, I got, you know, 
all A's. Can can I get twenty dollars? Because such and such got you know five dollars for an A and three dollars for a B, and uh, you know no no money for a C. And you know a lot of people over time would get rewards for various things they did. And I'd kind of beg my parents, can I get that too? Or can we have a Nintendo or whatever it was? And they'd always just reply, no. And I'd say, why? And I'd, they'd say, because bronze are different. That's why. And it really shut me down as a kid and that was frustrating. But over time, it also showed up when, you know, a kid got bullied at school and, um, you know, I'd step in and tell the, you know, bully, hey, you shouldn't do that. You know, don't, don't treat that person that way. And, you know, the teacher would tell my parents and they'd say, well, you know, do you know why you did that? I'd say, um, uh, why? And they'd say, because bronze are different. And so they started to ingrain this, this different set of values in us internally. And over time, you know, now as I think about my own career, 20s now into my 30s, um, it's just very clear to me that I, I crave being different. I, I crave taking the path that others aren't oftentimes willing to walk. And I think you have to have that type of internalized identity to want to take that leap over and over and over again. And for some people it's there, for others it's not, and that's okay if it's not. But um, you know, it's something that I think is difficult to, to kind of learn. Um, but at the same time, I've seen many, many people that you would not think would be willing to take the leap, take it and realize that it actually makes them feel incredibly alive. It stokes this internal fire and they really thrive in those environments. You know, the little back and forth we've had, I can tell you, you're very disciplined in how you choose to spend your time on a daily basis. What can we learn from kind of the, the, the ways you think about outlining your day and making the most of every single kind of meeting minute experience that you're going to have towards that big picture goal? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that's really important for, for my day is that before I have any digital contact, I have human contact. And it really sets uh, a tone that enables me to, to just frankly feel better um, throughout the rest of the day. It feels like I'm missing something if I don't have human contact first. And so I'd really encourage people to, to find a way to have that human contact before you dive into digital contact. You know, um, for me, that means before I grab my phone, I put my hand on my wife's shoulder. And literally just like take a deep breath, you know, tell her I love her, whatever that might be. But it's human contact first. And um, oftentimes I also don't even look at email until I've actually gotten up and, you know, changed our, our little babies. We have one-year-old twins and, and fed them. And that's like 45 minutes, but that's between 7 a.m. and 7.45 in the morning. And I had to kind of, you know, give myself permission to do that with the acknowledgement that no one's sitting there at 7, you know, 45 saying, how come Adam hasn't responded to my email that I sent him? Uh, already, you know, like n no one's thinking that it's that early in the morning and it's okay to start emailing at 750 rather than 650. And so, um, you know, starting with human contact, I think is critical. And then one thing I don't think I did a good job of um, early on, but now that I have children, I think of my time very differently. Uh, I am very relentless about it, saying no. Um, I say no to a lot of meetings. I say no to a lot of email outreach and introductions. I've come to become a big believer in double opt-in introductions. Um, because I think it's important for people to do that with me. Don't just send me an email and say, hey, uh, here's someone that I would love for you to you know, connect with. You two go at it. Because then I gotta be the bad guy and look like a jerk and make you look like a jerk um, if it's not a meeting that I can take. Uh, instead, send an email to the other party first, send it to both parties and say, hey, I'd like to introduce you two to one another. Are you both in agreement that's a good idea? And that's what I do with every one of the intros that I make and I make a lot every week. Um, but I think it just kind of allows people to, to make the decision themselves rather than thrusting um, something onto their calendar. And, um, you know, I also just deeply uh, value time with my team. And so whereas before I used to spend a ton of time just kind of the next meeting, the next meeting, the next donor, um, external, now I try and really focus on uh, valuing time with my team. 
And if you're listening to all of this and you're like, all right, this all sounds good. I've got my priorities lined. I've got my big picture vision. Uh, I just don't, you know, I, I'm just still on that ledge of, of taking a dip into the pool and taking taking the leap and going for something I really care about. What would you leave our listeners with as, as a piece of advice? Maybe something you wish you knew or something you'd, you'd want to tell others? Um, you know, I would just tell them to think about the fact that you can never get back a, a day in your life, right? Um, there's only one, you know, what make up the date, January, you know, 25th, 2018. You're only going to get one shot at that. And uh, even if you live in multiple lives, like there's, there's only one version of this specific experience. And so make the most of it. And if you're questioning, you know, how to do so, my, you know, kind of simple mantra uh, that someone shared with me that I kind of always come back to is make the little decisions with your head and the big ones with your heart and you'll be just fine. Amazing. We will end it there. Uh, For those who want to check out Pencils of Promise, uh, they have provided over 25 million education hours around the world in places from Nicaragua to Guatemala and beyond. Uh, As of, I think it was last year, the charity has served over 35,000 students and built 380 schools. Adam is the brainchild of that and is now on to Mission U. You can check that out at missionu.com. Uh, Adam Braun, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're a busy guy. I feel honored that somewhere in in the email pile I slipped through and and you're able to give us time. So thank you. My pleasure. All right, that will do it on the When to Jump podcast. Brian from LA, thank you for being our inaugural form submitter from the website uh, with a question that you wanted uh, everyone to get to hear and hopefully the answer that I gave and some of this content from Adam and the conversation you just heard uh, gives that to you. So if you've got other questions you want to ask him and, and hear him on the show, just email us. You can go to whentojump.com. There's a contact form at the bottom of any page and send it in. We'd love to hear what you're thinking and share more of this advice. I hope it was practical and tactical and, and also just useful for as you think of what your jump will be even if you're starting out just curious. So if you want more on when to jump, you know where to find us, whentojump.com. You can follow us on social media at whentojump on Instagram, facebook.com forward slash whentojump at whentojump on Twitter. We've got our online learning program called Jump Fundamentals uh, with applications opening today. So they will go until I believe just the next week or so, maybe a few days longer. Uh, But the applications, it's for anybody. It's a four-week online program that is uh, intentional around taking an idea or just taking anyone who who wants to have an idea all the way through uh, to kind of saying, okay, now I know what to do. Now I know what it's going to take. It follows the framework of the jump curve that we bring into the book, um, and it's for anybody. You might be starting your jump. You might be through a jump. Uh, Our first group of folks that we brought in hailed from six or seven different countries, every type of walk of life, every age and socioeconomic background. Um, So hopefully we'll get to get to welcome you in. So feel free to apply. That's when to jump.com forward slash jump school. We've got a newsletter that also comes out uh, on most Tuesdays. So you can check that out from the website. Um, And we want to hear from you. So don't be a stranger. If you've got something to say, a jump to share or a question to ask, reach out. We are here for you. All right. I am on the road. So I'm signing off from an island off the coast of Washington State in the Pacific Northwest. My name is Mike Lewis, and I will see you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.